You're listening to the Christian Single Moms Podcast. Hey, it's Michelle. Welcome back to the Christian Single Moms Podcast. As I've walked through my healing journey as a single mom, I always look backwards and I try not to spend too much time there, but I do. And I'm trying to figure out constantly how did I end up in a situation where I was in an unhealthy relationship and how do I make sure I don't repeat that again? It's taken a whole lot of searching for me to start to identify that the root of a lot of pain for me is embedded in some past trauma that I didn't even realize was there. Some of us do have past traumas that we're absolutely aware of and we know are causing us to experience a great deal of pain even in our adult lives. And then others of us may have endured some type of trauma that we're not even identifying as trauma because it's just normal to us. Either way, those past traumas, if we're not able to identify them and to heal from them, can cause us to have difficulty in relationships or just struggle to move forward. I have found the trickiest part of unraveling all of the details of my life is actually going backwards and realizing that I normalized some treatment that I should have been able to say, no, this is not acceptable. This is not the way I should be treated or things that I felt shame about that were not mine to feel shame about that someone had put onto me. But where I started getting so much clarity is in going back into my backstory, recognizing those places that were broken and seeing how those effects have changed the way that I engage in relationships and the way that I look at myself so that I can say no longer will I operate out of that broken place, but that I can accept the healing that God has for me and then start to do things in a different way. The effects of trauma and the effects of abuse are extremely far-reaching, and I think one of the things that's been a great key for me in my healing process is, number one, being able to understand what those effects are, what they do to me, what they do to a person, and then, number two, have some kind of roadmap for how do I change my thinking? How do I change? How do I deal with these feelings? How do I get through this? How do I get out of this? My guests in this episode are Steve and Celesta Tracy from a ministry called Mending the Soul. They have a model of healing that is unlike anything I've seen before. It's a great combination of the biblical, spiritual side of things and the emotional therapeutic side. And they've put it together in a book and a workbook and support groups to help with healing any kind of past traumas that are causing now trouble in your life Sometimes we just have this sense. We know that something is not right, but we don't know what we don't know. And we need either outside counsel or some kinds of resources that can help point us to looking in our past and going, oh, okay, this thing that I thought was normal is not normal, but this is how I can heal it. And they have just such a clear cut model of how to go from disconnected feelings to places where we're actually thriving and enjoying our life and enjoying our relationships. We're also going to talk in this episode about how to find that support. So if you do need those outside people, whether it's a counselor or people in your church or people in a support group, how to go about locating those resources if you don't already have them. I know that in many cases, women are not able to find clinical type of resources in their churches when it comes to things like trauma and abuse and stuff like that. And so we talk a little bit about how to go about doing that if that is your case. In this episode, we do talk about the importance of having wise counsel. And I'd like to make sure that I mention our sponsor, Faithful Counseling, in that. Faithful Counseling is Christian counseling that is available to you on your schedule. It's something that works through an app and you're able to schedule appointments, video appointments, chats, all that kind of thing with a Christian counselor who can help you just to, to see maybe some of those things that you don't see. and bring you to a place of healing. Right now, if you go to getfaithful.com slash single mom, you can get 10% off of your first month. So if counseling is something that you've been considering, faithful counseling might be a great option for you. To give you a little background on Steve and Celesta and Mending the Soul, Mending the Soul was conceived in 2003 when Steve and Celesta 
and a handful of men and women met with a passion to comfort those broken by abuse because there were so few resources available to address the complexities of abuse and neglect steve and celesta published mending the soul understanding and healing abuse to educate others on the nature and the effects of abuse and the mending the soul workbook to guide survivors through an interactive and integrated process of healing and forgiveness in community with each other Steve is the president and international director for Mending the Soul and professor of theology and ethics at Phoenix Seminary, where he has taught since 1995. He received a bachelor's from Arizona State, a master's in divinity, and a master's in theology from Western Seminary, and a PhD in biblical studies from the University of Sheffield, England. Celesta received her master's in counseling and psychology from Lewis and Clark University in Portland, Oregon, and draws from 25 years of teaching and training experience in the areas of abuse and healing, secondary trauma, intimacy and bonding, biblical sexuality, and soul care. Steve and Celesta have three grown children who, with their families, partner with them in the ministries of justice and mercy. Steve and Celesta have been married over 40 years, and they are just a power couple. They're quite a dynamic duo. With their two areas of specialty, they're really able to tackle this topic from kind of a head, heart, spirit approach. And so you'll hear a little bit of that going on in our conversation. But I'm just so thrilled to bring this to you because their resources have done so much for me in my healing journey, and I hope that you'll find this conversation healing for you as well. Stephen Celesta, I'm so thankful that you could join us today for this conversation. This is a subject that listeners are really hungering for answers, really to understand what does the Bible say about domestic violence and abuse and these really difficult topics that we're often uncomfortable talking about in the church community or in Christian, in Christian circles at all. And I'm so thankful for the work that you've done because you are shining light on those places and helping us understand that while there is a psychological component, and we've covered that a lot on the podcast, there's also a spiritual component to these things as well. So what's unique about your approach is the fact that you are combining this, this psychological and the spiritual that sort of um, all, all facets of that. And I think that's really important because there are effects that happen in the entire person, whether it's mind, body, or spirit. And so I really appreciate that you all take that perspective. And because of that outlook, the resources that you have describe abuse as a perversion of the image of God. I want to know if you'll start us off by talking a little bit more about that more spiritual definition of abuse. Sure. <clears throat> I, I'm a theologian. Uh, that's how I've been trained. I've taught theology for 25 years at Phoenix Seminary. and I'm thankful that God's allowed me to do that because scripture has so much to say about abuse. That's what's crazy when we don't address it. And, and frankly, in my training, I was given not five minutes on abuse in all of my studies. But scripture is so <laughs> replete with references to abuse. Um, we just need to see what's there and draw the principles. Um, in terms of how God's made us, most evangelical theologians would argue, virtually all would argue, that the, the most significant thing about what it means to be a human being is that we're made in the very image of God. It's right out of Genesis 1 and 26 through 28 in the creation account. So if we can look at how abuse impacts, twists, distorts our being image bearers, that's going to give us some real insights and understandings and into a what, what Satan's diabolical strategy is and how abuse corrupts the very best of how God's made us, because that's always Satan's game plan. Um, so in the book, I break a, a abuse down in the five kinds of abuse down into five ways the image of God is twisted in us. Image of God is uh, a really robust concept in scripture. There's not any one thing. It's the, the myriad of ways that we are like God, that we mirror him and represent him. So I could, I'll just quickly mention those. Um, one aspect of being uh, an image bearer is that we're, we have a relational capacity and longing. In Genesis 1, 26, it says, uh, God speaking, let us make humans in our image. Well, that's fascinating. 
there's relationality within the divine being, within God himself. We know from fuller revelation that God's Trinitarian, Father, Son, Spirit, in perfect intimacy for all eternity. So when he made us, he made us relational beings. Our gender gives us both a capacity and a longing for intimate connection. And that's not just in marriage, and it's not just sexual. It's the whole package. Um, so, wow, it makes sense that Satan would tempt people to misuse their sexuality and take advantage of others sexually, and to that extent, um, corrupt this real fundamental part of who we are as image bearers. Neglect, which is the opposite of physical abuse. Instead of, it's, it's what I don't do that I should do instead of what I do. Mm -hmm. um, neglect is the failure to care for those God's put in our, um, in our care, particularly our family members, our children. Um, Paul tells Timothy that if the man doesn't care for his own household, he's worse than a pagan. Last kind of abuse is, is spiritual. Um, that's when a, particularly a church leader, but it's not limited to a church leader, misuses their spiritual power. It could be scripture, it could be prayer, it could be church tradition, it could be just their authority. I'm the pastor, I'm the priest, you have to do it because I represent God. Um, when spiritual power is misused uh, to harm someone, that really causes tremendous harm when the very resources that should build us up are used against us. Spiritual abuse is difficult as well because you can also see that just within like a marriage dynamic, for example, where scripture is being twisted to have power and control to manipulate another person. Um, or in the cases where a person is able to gather support from church leadership in order to kind of go after the other, the opposite party or to manipulate, I guess, triangulate basically where there's a, a, a triangle dynamic between the perpetrator, the target, and then these unknowing members of the church congregation, of the church congregation in which those spiritual type things are then used as sort of weapons rather than for the intention that they have to give life. Yeah. So knowing that these are some of the ways that abuse shows up in our lives, can you talk about the, you, in your book, you mentioned the characteristics of abusers. How can we understand them from a more spiritual lens? Yeah. Um, again, scripture has so much to say uh, about abusers. There are just literally hundreds of passages and examples. My short list, uh, would be four things. You know, we could add to it, but these are really fundamental characteristics, and it's so important for um, us to be aware of these characteristics. And the first would be a, a pervasive denial of responsibility. Abusers are characterized characterized by shifting blame, minimizing, gaslighting, just distorting reality, and that can can get so confusing um, for the abuse victim because often. Most often, abuse victims already feel toxic shame. That is, they feel responsible for things they're actually not responsible for. And then if you have an abuser shifting blame, it just compounds uh, the, the, the damage, the harm. Not only do they not take responsibility, they slander the victim as if something the victim did made it justified or somehow it's the victim's fault. And it's not uncommon for abusers to end up portraying themselves as the victim. Um, we, we see that often. I found with many people that, yeah, I've found with many women that I've worked with that it's often difficult when they're trying to get help because they are often appearing very emotional and maybe sure. frantic while the person that is perpetrating the abuse looks very calm and collected. And so... Um, or that it turns into a, well, she did this. And unfortunately, that's where it starts to look like, well, both of you have responsibility for this situation. Yep. And that's really and truly not the way that, that it works. Sadly, that is, that is so, so common. A harsh judgmentalism would be a second common characteristic of, of abusers, not just domestic uh, batterers. We see it with sexual abusers and others, um, but very characteristic 
risk of um, domestic abusers. Um, third characteristic would be bold deceitfulness. Oh, man. Um, and, and there's different kinds of abusers, but very commonly, there's a crafty, clever deceitfulness to, to abusers that can be breathtaking and can, my goodness, just really um, cloud everyone around, around that person's ability to see truth for what it is. Uh, and then calculated intimidation. Abusers sadly know how to intimidate their victims. And, and the, some of the most dangerous abusers are the best at this because they may not leave marks. You know, if you just pummel your wife and break her nose, that, that's pretty easy to verify. But you can threaten her in ways that are very real, very traumatic, very abusive, may even be criminal, and yet not as easy for an outsider to really know what's going on. I think that understanding of intimidation is a, a huge key of it, too, because it's where it feels like a domestic terrorism where this this other person is now walking around in constant state of fear and anxiety that they're going to tip the scale and that something might happen and so this person is now walking on eggshells because they the threats and the intimidation is something that's just become a dynamic in the relationship yeah i find as well with many women that i speak to that that intersection between a trust loving romantic relationship and that abuse dynamic is where all that confusion takes place because it is i heard him say this thing he says he loves me but this is what is happening and they don't connect and so oftentimes there's something to explain away the behavior or to minimize simply because there's like a cognitive dissonance that's going on that the two things don't match up and i have to make sense of it somehow because he says he loves me so that has to be the truth and in that, though, that's just one of the effects of abuse, but in the work that you've done, you talk about four specific types of abuse, and you list shame, powerlessness, deadness, and isolation. I have to say, when I read that about deadness, I've never seen that anywhere, and I just, I think, I mean, I, I my breath was taken away because I absolutely understand what that means to lose all of your connection to your life and to your personhood and your uniqueness and your separateness. And I just thought it was so fascinating that you all identified that. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about how each of these types of effects might appear in ourselves or our children. Sure. Yeah, shame, powerlessness, deadness, isolation. The, the secular literature on abuse is extensive in documenting these effects. Um, there's really good scientific knowledge of these effects. They're largely biological, and I didn't understand that as a young pastor. Um, I, I do now, just mm-hmm. the way God's made us when yeah. we experience abuse. When we experience abuse, all kinds of things in, in our um nervous system begin to happen in terms of chemical changes that, that really explain uh, most of these effects. But shame is that sense that something is horribly def- wrong and defective in me, and it can't be changed. So th- there's a healthy shame, and healthy shame is when I really stand guilty before God because I violated his uh, word, and something is wrong, but it can be fixed. I can repent. I can turn. I can ask for forgiveness from God and others. Toxic shame says, no, you're, you're, you're irredeemably defective, and all you can do is hide. And then there's a, all kinds of things that go with it in terms of, I'm, I'm dirty, I'm disgusting. If people really knew who I was, what had happened. It won't have nothing to do with me, etc. Um, that is one of the most common effects of abuse. Powerlessness, that's very uh, neurological. When, we're, when we experience a life-threatening event, we, and, and it happens automatically, we just shut down. And we've all had that happen. You know, we, we, you freeze. Um, something just that's so overwhelming that jolts us It's like you can't move. Well, if that's just a short-term experience, that's normal. But when that kicks off a cascade of things neurologically so that we become shut down and powerless long-term, really, really destructive. 
so there's a biological element, there's a, a psychological element, if we could put it this way. When you experience abuse, say, say as a child, I'll put it in the context of a child who's um, sexually abused, say by a, a father or brother, they don't have power. They are powerless. And when you find yourself powerless in an overwhelming, destructive way, it's understandable that you just start to feel as if you you have no power because in a very real sense, you don't. I mean, you have some that you're not aware of, but mm-hmm. um, you, you just, you shut down in, um, in psychological ways, make, making it so much easier for you to be re-victimized. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's powerlessness. Deadness is very similar. Um, it's, we see it in a lack of, affect the 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 flat face there's no expression there's no highs there's no lows Um, and you see this with lots of kinds of trauma survivors even beyond just abuse because the biological effects are very similar you see it with soldiers they talk they talk about the thousand yard stare i think of a few pictures from vietnam war Mm -hmm. and world war ii where the poor soldier is just you know grimy and dirty and 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 you see the face and they're just (laughs) There's nothing there. It's like no one's home. That's what we're talking about here, an yeah. emotional deadness that, that is the effect of trauma. And again, you can see how Satan would play on that To If I'm emotionally dead, then I'm not going to feel danger when it's there. I, I'm not going to be able to set healthy boundaries, etc. Um, and then isolation, which is very tied to shame. Uh, abuse survivors, because of what's happen to them for many reasons tend to be cut off from healthy relationships so the very thing they need for protection and healing and recovery if you will they're cut off from so they they may have a you know certain level of relationships but they're not intimate they're they're, they're not going to be vulnerable there's not going to be a depth um, they're, they're cut off now with domestic abuse victims the abusers will strategize to isolate their victims um, from family, from friends. And that's mm-hmm. often very calculated and deliberate, which just compounds the damage. So those would be the, the four primary effects of abuse. And that relational isolation is something that we'll talk about actually in a future episode because these types of experiences absolutely shape the way our future relationships come together or don't depending on whether or not we're able to identify these issues and to heal from them correctly. Celeste, did you have something else you wanted to add in the middle of that? I just thought of a story that came to mind out of our Many in the Soul community. And her story illustrates just these four effects of abuse, how they come together and impact us, sabotaging the very relationships we long to have. And I could tell that story now. I think it's a good fit. Um, But this is a mother and a grandmother. She was a single mom when she came to me almost 20 years ago and to get help. And her presenting issue was difficulty and conflict with her adult daughter. And she didn't understand it. This mother was gentle and wise and smart and educated and merciful. She loved the Lord. She loved this daughter desperately, but the daughter didn't feel her love. There wasn't um, healthy communication in the relationship. And this mother was so distraught. So when she came in, she wanted, of course, to work on that relationship and I asked her if instead, if we couldn't start there, let's start with the mother herself and let's look at the history, that family of origin this mother came out of, grew up in. And as we did, it began to really unfold for this mother understanding as to what was going on that was disrupting this relationship with her daughter. And it turned out this mother had experienced childhood sexual abuse. She was raised by two loving parents, but they were intellectual scientists. They were 
very rational and analytical. There was no emotional vibrancy or connection or intimacy in her home. So all of those dimensions of um, this mother's emotional self, her relational self, her sexual self, her physical self, her relationship with her body had all been distorted in her family of origin through the neglect, the emotional neglect, the sexual abuse, the spiritual community not offering care, the neglect of the spiritual community to understand. So this mother had layers and layers and layers of childhood pain. She had never expressed, never disclosed, never talked about, and never dealt with. So as she did, it was, in a sense, a resurrection that began to happen. Her dead, numb heart began to come to life. She began to feel again. As she spoke about things that had been unspeakable in their horror, the power of all of that trauma she was keeping inside was was dissipated. And so she began to understand this original design, this person that God had created her to be that was unique in every way, unique in gifts and talent and strengths and personality and spiritual gifts. And she began to connect to that real self because shame also, in addition to causing us to hide, I think almost the most insidious piece of it is the distortions that happen. Everything that's true about us, shame distorts. For this mother, she was so merciful and gracious and loving, but she had been accused of being stupid and dumb and too quiet. All of these characteristics of who God had created her to be that she had not even seen in herself, she was able to connect to. So she identified the lies that I'm at fault. I'll never be in a healthy relationship. Lies about herself. She started to identify lies about God spiritually, that she really thought she deserved her abuse, that God had done it, sent it to punish her. There were all kinds of lies in her spiritual community that she uncovered and was able to replace with truth. And then she began to uncover lies about other people, that actually there are safe people out there. There are people you can trust. There are people that care about your pain, that want to know your real self, that don't expect you to be perfect, that want to experience the real you. And all of that um, repair, lies turned into truths about God's self and others, can only happen in community. And so as she was then embedded in a many the soul group, began to hear others that had stories really similar. She began to connect the dots all the way back to her childhood and understand how sexual abuse and the sexual perversion that came out of it normalized trauma, sexual violence, the misogyny, the hatred of women. And she had absorbed all of that. So what she had experienced that she thought was normal and true, and in fact then went into a marriage and reenacted her own victimization without even realizing it. When those light bulbs came on, she began to blossom and grow and speak. And she began to teach and train and facilitate other women. We would pair her with other faith leaders so that she would be their facilitator. And in Mending the Soul, you start with telling your story. So she would tell her story first. 
And these women would identify and could start to come out of the isolation that Steve referenced of I'm not alone. This has happened to other people. I have felt alone because of these effects and how they impacted their present relationships. So to make a, a very beautiful long story short, she went on then to prepare and to speak about her relationship with her daughter. Her daughter then disclosed her own abuse within her home too. And so they were able to come together and to help each other heal from childhood abuse that had gone on into the second generation. And so their relationship was repaired and where there was distance and anger and hurt and confusion, it was replaced with intimacy and connection and vibrancy and life. And today, now this mother is a grandmother who has grandchildren that she is very intimately connected to. And she is one of our international trainers who tells her stories in places of sexual violence and hopelessness like the Congo. And her story goes out to hundreds of thousands of people every year of hope, healing, and redemption. And it's just such a picture of how these very effects that Satan means to shut us down and keep us shut down for life, when we understand them, identify to them, and work on them, we experience healing that we never knew we would ever be able to experience. I love that your ministry focuses so much on the hopeful aspect of being able to reconnect and to heal these things. Because I know so many women, we all have this experience where I know I'm isolated. I know I'm disconnected. I know I don't trust people. I want to. I don't know how to get there though. And your workbook specifically has such specific step-by-step-by-step pieces and even a model that outlines if you're in an unhealthy space, you're going to start it disconnected but then you can move through these healing steps to get to connection and really start to have, and as you said, a connection to yourself and to God and how he made you. And then that extend out into your relationality with other people. Now I know that that gap can be really difficult to jump when you're in that space of knowing I, I need to do something, but confronting this is really scary. I mean, I'll even be honest when I received the books in the mail, I put the package in my hand and I, I had like a mini panic attack because it was like, wow, you're going to confront, you're going to heal and you're going to grow, but you have to confront some things that are going to be painful. So how can you help somebody who's listening who might be in that space understand what those first few steps should look like in establishing safety? You know, that, that really is that first goal, but what that could look like. So it makes the whole road ahead look a lot less daunting. Well, we teach, we have quite a bit of instruction around what are safe relationships and what are not safe relationships, what's healthy, what's not healthy. Because sadly, what we grow up in is normalized. So, I mean, that's the good news and the bad news. And all of our homes are a mixture of both. So if we grow up, in a home that has neglect, abandonment as a part of it. And neglect can happen for really um, innocent reasons, under-resourced families where parents are away working all the time. Um, neglect happens and that impacts development and creates developmental trauma. So that is what is normalized. So we won't even know what safety is mm -hmm. until we are taught and given some instruction and help. Hosea says, without knowledge, my people perish. And so the starting place is, it would, it, there's just quite a bit I'd like to say about this mm -hmm. because Satan makes me so angry because he's such a trickster. Mm -hmm. He's not just a liar. He's the father of lies. Mm -hmm. And this 
is one of his tactics. He's super predictable. So he's boring in this way because he does it every time. He, When we are thinking about, could there be hope for me? Could I find healing? Could I find a partner that knows how to love me well, that I could learn how to love well? Is that possible for me? At that moment, Satan comes in and begins making you afraid of the very things that will bring you life. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you're going to be afraid to look at, to examine and assess and disclose all that was horrific and evil and painful in your past. That's really normal. It's a very logical response to horror or to evil or abuse is banish it from our consciousness. But when we do that, it's like, um, I use an example of a, a beach ball. You're invited to this lovely party. You want to be a part of it. You walk in, the host hands you this big beach ball and the host tells you your job, get in that pool. You've got to keep that beach ball below the waterline. That's your job. Keep it down. So the whole time you want to be talking, you want to be eating and drinking, you want to be laughing, you want to be telling jokes, but you can't because your energy and your focus is on this ball and your job is to keep it below the waterline. That is why abuse survivors feel so exhausted Mm -hmm. and tired because they have been keeping these effects at bay the shame messages, the lies, the hopelessness, the isolation, the voicelessness, the numbing, all of that. They they have to keep it all down. The memories, our encouragement to survivors, like when you got your books, Michelle, and you thought, oh my word, your heart starts to race. Well, that's because your body is remembering all that you've experienced in your past and the pain and the stuff that came up for you in your adult relationships and was painful in your childhood and your body, all of that is trapped inside. So your body's remembering. So your body is your friend, not your enemy. Mm -hmm. So when you start to feel anxious, we again have lots of grounding and um, exercises that we teach men and women how to anchor, how to calm themselves, but how to move into and and address what they need to. We begin the Mending the Soul journey, as you know, with original design. And we teach men and women how to listen to the Spirit of God, to read the scriptures for themselves, and to pay attention to what the spirit is bringing up for them and the spirit of comfort, our spirit of truth that God has given us brings up all kinds of healing imagery, sometimes healing dreams, healing scriptures, healing memories. And it is the most mysterious truth-based biblically guided, gospel saturated, hope infused journey you could ever step on. And so don't be afraid of all of that. There's so much life on the other side. There's so much to experience. You just have to take that first step and the momentum carries you. And I think that's the thing to know is it's it's like, you know, when you just push a ball down a hill, you know, you just got to give it that first push and there's so much goodness. It'll just carry. And yeah, yeah, you'll be, you know, you'll be confronting some things, but you're going to feel some incredible release. And as you mentioned, even in your own body, I, I've heard people say that before and I never really got what that meant until I started confronting some of these things. And then it was just like, you could feel the tension. You could feel in your face, like even just the way you smile in pictures, like you can see when a person is experiencing like that release in their life because they're not underneath this, this shame anymore. 
Feelings of disconnection and isolation lead to that sensation of loneliness that so many of us are going through. And I've developed a few resources at agapemoms.com free to help with kind of looking at your situation and determining where do I go next from here? First, it just starts off with a quiz and it talks about your loneliness type. And after you take the quiz and get some more information about what exactly is causing your specific feelings of loneliness, then you can have a look at some of the resources that I've created to help to understand how you can change those. There's a free guide there, The Seven Loneliness Traps, but there's also a new e-course called From Lonely to Alive, A Single Mom's Guide to Life and Love. Learning how to go from a place of disconnection to reconnection is not easy. In that video course, I've created seven exercises that you can use in your daily life to just help to start changing that mindset, changing some of those things that are causing those feelings of isolation. But as I said, it does all start with that quiz at agapemoms.com free. Now, as we've talked about community, though, being a huge aspect of that and safe people, I know a lot of women that I speak to have difficult time finding that community sometimes within their own church communities. And they'd really like to, but it's not always the case that a woman has a resource in this direction um, that can offer that much clarity and that much specificity when it comes to, yes, this is what you're going through. This is how you need to heal it or that kind of thing, especially if it's being brought while she's still in a marriage relationship and it's very confusing as to what is even happening in this marriage dynamic. Sometimes it just looks like, oh, you guys need marriage counseling and that kind of stuff. So what could you say to a woman who is perhaps in that situation where she's not able to find or hasn't yet been able to find the kind of support she feels she needs from her church home? I would, that's a common scenario. I'd make a couple suggestions. Always we want to begin with prayer, praying that God would lead us to someone in the church that maybe is a little older, um, or at least spiritually, they've walked with God longer than we have. And maybe that person, they may not be a pastor, but there's someone in the church that we could begin to share with. And maybe they could go with, uh, they could help us identify some of the leaders that are maybe more knowledgeable, and maybe they could go with us to have some of those uh, difficult conversations. Second suggestion, Michelle, uh, research shows that, uh, thankfully, the majority of, and this is a change, the majority of evangelical pastors now are very aware of the fact that abuse happens, we have to address it, etc. Most of them in surveys acknowledge having um, dealt with domestic violence in their congregation, but sadly, the vast majority of evangelical pastors say that they don't really have the tools they need to respond. And hence, they feel mm-hmm. responsible to, to respond to something that they don't have the tools to respond to. So they end mm-hmm. up not responding. They end up getting paralyzed. And we can interpret that as they're just bad pastors. Well, I mean, there's, you can find bad people anywhere, but I don't, I think the majority of the time that's not what's going on. No, I think they deeply deeply care. care. In fact, that's part of the problem. They care so much that they feel Mm -hmm. bad that they don't know what to do and they're confused. And so they didn't want to mess it up. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's why I teach in a seminary. Mm -hmm. That's why we created uh, many in the soul uh, under God's direction. We created these resources so that a woman in the pews, so to speak, could take the Mending the Soul book or even my journal articles online that, that we have downloadable for free, other resources, take those to her pastor and say, this helps explain what I've been through. I really want you as my pastor to understand this. Um, I need your spiritual care. I, I don't expect you to be an expert on abuse, but resource that I think will will help you understand my plight and could we talk about it after you've read it you know that kind of thing um, that can be just extremely helpful mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. who knows a, a support group for abuse survivors could get started up pastors don't have to be the ones leading it all they have to do is pray and support right and that's perfect you need mm-hmm. that and wow 
things can really start to happen. We've seen that over and over. I think that's an important step to know that as you're going through this, if you are looking for those safe people, you're going to have to advocate for yourself in some sense that, and I know a lot of times it's like, oh, well, there's counseling. You could go to counseling and that sort of thing. But there's something about the accountability that's in the church community and in that even pastoral relationship in the congregation that is so needed in the in the process of confronting this. So I love your suggestion to say, you know, take this workbook, take these journal articles that you are informing yourself, but your, your right. pastor can learn at the same time as you. It's okay. They don't have to already right. know it, but if they're willing, and in many cases, you're right, they are, that you can actually sort of journey side by side in this. And it could be something that opens the door of healing for so many other people who are in your congregation that you don't even know are exactly. suffering through this kind of thing. Just, Michelle, to, to really highlight not to devalue your voice in Phoenix, which is where Many in the Soul began, we have churches now that are hosting 10 Many in the Soul groups every semester. Well, that began because of a survivor who needed help, didn't find it within her church. So she started advocating for herself and the other women and men in that congregation that she knew were there, even though she didn't know their stories. Mm-hmm. And so don't minimize your voice. It's your story is powerful. Now, if a woman's in a situation where maybe she is trying to advocate for herself and she's not finding what she needs where she is, what do you think she should do? You do your best to talk to the leaders, to bring some resources, to prayerfully see if God would lead you to someone else, maybe another layperson um, who's has some influence in the church, who's walked with the Lord longer than you have who really has some wisdom um you know you try all those things but at the end of the day if you really have given it your best effort and the leadership is just flat not willing to listen not willing to hear they're gonna basically collaborate with abusers then i think there comes a point where you need to find another congregation with leaders that have the humility to listen and support survivors the way they need to be supported prioritize your healing so your mission in the beginning is not to help an unhealthy church become healthy mm-hmm. that's a big job yeah and yes that's uh-huh. a job that's going to take a village and that village is going to be created mm-hmm. through healing so others healing hinges to your healing you're a mama you are doing your own healing for those little ones that you are raising. And then you're going to, like me, I'm 61 and have grand littles that I am impacting. So prioritize your healing first. Dig in, continue to work on your own personal healing, and then out of your story, Mending the Soul will help you do it. You help a little community heal. That community breaks into cells. Those cells break into cells. And before you know it, an unhealthy church has to change because there's all these soul Marines that are being trained. Mm, Soul Marines. I like that. Personal healing. There are three stages of healing in the literature. And the first is you have to establish safety until you establish safety. You can't get to the nuts and bolts of healing, which is integration. You don't do integration, you can't get to reconnection, which is that intimacy you long for, the sweet relationship with your kids that you long for. You can't get there to do integration. So focusing on safety is number one. One question I ask before the end of every interview, I ask every guest the same question, is what is one thing that you think every single mom who's dealing with this particular topic should Uh, know. I would love to answer that. What I want them to know from our own family, our daughter was a single mom for several years. She and her her two children lived with us. Uh, What I know from our family, what I know from everything I find in scripture, what I know from our ministry is this. We serve a redeeming God. You have not experienced anything that God can't redeem. There is no evil. 
or pain that you have and are suffering that God's not big enough and good enough to bring good out of and to heal. And, and not just to heal, but to actually use for, for, for good. And that is astounding. And it's very hard for survivors when they're in the middle of the pain to believe that. But we see it. Well, we testified to it. And it's what scripture declares. Second Corinthians 1 says the, the grace and comfort we receive in our time of need and our affliction, God gives us so that we can comfort others who are in similar affliction. So for single moms, what they've suffered, God would delight, does delight in you comfort, comforting and healing and then using that pain to be a very vehicle to help others in a way you couldn't have if you hadn't been through it. That scripture is the basis of Agape Moms, the Christian Single Moms podcast, and it is just fascinating to me. It comes up over and over and over. God is so good. Wow. Yes, isn't it, Yes, it is. Scripture says no matter how deep, how wide the suffering is, that the greater the suffering, the greater capacity to hold God's comfort. Mm -hmm. The greater comfort we receive from God, the more potent we are in offering that comfort to others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's where hope comes from. Yep, yep. Well, Stephen Celesta, can you tell us more um, if a listener wants to connect more, learn about the resources, get a copy of the workbook? How do they find you? Go to mendingthesoul.org. We are on the other side of that contact button, um, and we want you to let us know you're listening, um, you need encouragement to begin your healing journey, order the resources, and we will support you in getting started. In this conversation, Steve and Celesta really helped me to understand not only the biblical approach to the effects of abuse, but then also a really solid model of how we can go from those effects to a place of healing where those things don't have to hold us back anymore. And there's actually so much more about this that affects our relationships and the way that we engage in healthy relationships in the future that the next episode I'm going to launch next week is actually a continuation of this conversation in which we focus specifically on how to define and understand healthy intimacy and sexuality as we move from a place of disconnection to healing. So I really hope you'll join me for that. As always, you can follow along on Facebook or Instagram at Agape Moms. And I've also created a new Facebook group called Beloved Collective. It's a totally private group where you can join with other single moms and just ask questions about things you're going through, share wisdom about things that you're learning and engage with other women who are also on their healing walk. You can request to join that group again over on Facebook. Just have a look for us at Agape Moms and we'll look forward to having you with us. I pray that in this episode, you just were able to receive some clarity maybe about some things that you have experienced, but also some hope about where you can go with this in the future and what God has for you in terms of a healthy connection to him, to yourself, and to the people around you. Thanks for joining me in this episode, and I look forward to having you with me next time.